Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 116, The Arsenal of Freedom. Welcome to the all-new and improved Mark II Special Edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log... Each week we- on Mission Log, we take apart Star Trek to examine the morals, meanings, and messages within. Yeah, I was going to say that. There is simply no finer podcast in the galaxy. Mission Log wipes out the competition, leaves your teeth white, and your car showroom clean. You know, that sounds great. I'll take seven. Then my work here is done. Except for the show. Right. This week, it's Arsenal of Freedom. You put it together from Minos. Uh, all that that happened before, that was recorded. Now what? I'm live. Oh. That was just an old recording. Wow. All so right. now, I'm, now I'm live, now I'm back. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, John. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so, that, that, yes, uh, Arsenal of Freedom. Yeah. That's How about that, Arsenal? That's a... Uh, wow. Huh? Mm-hmm. Are we skipping to the end, or do we have other stuff we want to do? Oh, we got other stuff. I okay. got a lot of stuff, actually. Are we telling people now when to get in touch with us, or should they stay tuned for that later? I think they should stay tuned. All right. Well, then that means it's time for trivia. Okay. Well, today's show, Arsenal of Freedom, we give the teleplay credit to Hans Beamler and Richard Manning. But... Other stuff to talk about behind the scenes. Now, remember Les Landau. He was the AD, assistant director, when he was pulled to finish shooting Code of Honor when director Russ Mayberry was fired slash left. Um, This is Landau's first full directing gig, and we will see a lot more from him down the road. Now, the story of the production here might typify some of the behind the scenes problems with season one of TNG. Um, Production was actually delayed because of the lack of a script. It's one of the only times that that happened, actually, where they actually had to postpone production because they had no script. Um, Scenes were drastically rewritten, mainly due to disagreement over the Picard and Beverly Crusher scenes in which he would have been the one injured and she would have unloaded on him about her true feelings. Gene Roddenberry did not like the idea, and the writer felt quite hampered. So what you have is Robert Lewin's original story idea with a major part of the character development getting nixed by Gene and then Maurice Hurley, who I've mentioned before, uh, essentially rewriting all of it. Um, We're coming up to the end here of Lewin's career with TNG and, and actually his career overall. Uh, leading to his departure and Hurley's promotion to head writer. Um, And you may remember that I asked our audience to remember Maurice Hurley's name as we go forward, because this is sort of uh, one of those early behind-the-scenes kind of skirmishes in which his name will come up again, and uh, it may lead to some more of the uh, juggling of the staff and cast. So uh, this is one of those first shots fired in that behind-the-scenes drama. Um, Now, Minos, we mentioned, is the planet where uh, this takes place. And uh, I thought it was aptly named. Uh, Now, I I don't remember a lot of my uh, ancient mythology from high school, but I did remember Minos, that he was the uh, Greek mythological king who, uh, who sent 14 kids every nine years to be eaten by a minotaur. Um, so you don't want to be a kid and be around King Minos. And uh, when he died, he became a judge of the dead in the underworld. So uh, interesting name to choose for this planet. Um, and Ken, you mentioned the title, The Arsenal of Freedom. Well, it's very interesting. The Arsenal of Democracy was a speech given. It was a fireside chat by Franklin D. Roosevelt on December 29th, 1940. Now, that was three months after the agreement had been signed between the Axis powers and uh, nearly a full year before the U.S. entered World War II. And the gist of that speech was encouraging American citizens to get behind the idea of supporting the Allied powers with weapons, ships, planes, any material of war um, that could be used for our allies, particularly the British, uh, to defend themselves. 
So, um, like I said, a full, nearly a full year before the U.S. entered World War II, um, but uh, with U.S. Uh, uh, sort of opinion being split on whether we should enter that war or not, this was a plea to uh, to at least get behind the idea of supporting our allies and hopefully keep the U.S. out of the war, uh, at least from being on the ground. Uh, now, let's talk about the special effects a little bit. Uh, we do get to take apart the Enterprise again here. All of it reused the re-edited footage from Encounter at Farpoint. And uh, I mentioned a few episodes ago, Dan Curry. Like I said, he's a, a name that will come up over and over again. And he's the one who built the practical effects for the EP, the Echo Papa 607 weapon on Minos. And it was actually a legs pantyhose package and a shampoo bottle stuck together and painted gold. And what was cool, <laughs> what was cool is that that was shot, you know, they shot it on their big uh, planet exterior set. And uh, pretty much all of that was shot as a puppet uh, rather than doing my optical composite effects and post. Um, he was actually holding it and sometimes wearing green screen material <laughs> so he could hold that guy up. And uh, finally, finally, Vincent Chiavelli. He is our guest star here, a major guest star here. Uh, he is such a well-known character actor. He died too young at the age of 57 from lung cancer. He appeared in just about everything you like. And when I say you, I mean all of you. Uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, every TV show ever made. And he was married to Elise Beasley from Moonlighting. He is like the nexus point for all of the podcasts that we're going to do. Yeah, yeah. If we can find out whether he was on an episode of Three's Company, mm, mm-hmm. and then then it's just seriously all covered. Don't know if he was in Kolchak though. Breaking news! Breaking news! Ken seems to have realized his lifelong dream of turning himself into a cyborg or robot or something. It's subtle, but I think you'll hear proof in this segment. The Enterprise is in the Lorenz Cluster, looking to find out what happened to the light cruiser USS Drake. The Drake had been in the Lorenz Cluster, trying to figure out what happened to the inhabitants of the planet Minos. It appears that all intelligent life on Minos has disappeared. Minos is, or was, a planet of arms dealers. Their weapons are top of the line, and they have no problem selling to both sides of a given conflict. Riker says whatever happened to the Drake happened quickly. If it hadn't, its captain, Rice, with whom Riker was at the Academy, would have done something. Riker could have had command of the Drake, by the way, but he chose instead to serve on the Enterprise. The bridge crew is discussing what could have happened to all of the people of Minos when the Enterprise is hailed by the planet. It's not a survivor, exactly. It's an automated pitchman. Beam on down to Minos, the arsenal of freedom for the best weapons whatever you have can buy. Riker calls for an away team. Security Chief Yar wants to keep that small in case whatever killed everyone on Minos is still in a killing mood. Act 1. Riker, Yar, and Data beam down to the planet. Data says their communications are being monitored by... something. They find technology that's beyond Starfleet's ability to produce lying in ruin. Dividing to cover a wider area, Riker comes upon Captain Rice. A rather inquisitive, though non-emotive Rice. Rice is all questions. How many people are with you? How big is your ship? But no answers to questions like, what happened to you and what happened to the Drake? The Enterprise interrupts the rather one-sided conversation to say that despite what Riker sees, there are only three life signs on the Enterprise. Riker's not as good at human-computer word jujitsu as Captain James T. Kirk, but he does frustrate the Rice construct. Once it realizes it'll get no answers, it disappears. Turns out it was a projection of some sort of floating weapon. It locks Riker in a stasis field, then is blown up by Lieutenant Yar. Act 2. The Enterprise can't get a transporter lock on Riker, probably because of the stasis field. That the planet kept him rather than killed him leads Yar to think that someone will be along to pick him up at some point. Picard decides that someone will be him. He and Dr. Crusher will beam down over the objections of Counselor Troy. Geordi LaForge has commanded the Enterprise while the captain is away. Picard tells Data to get to work removing the force field around Riker. 
He sort of needs the captain's orders on that, since doing so will put Riker at risk. The Enterprise calls down to let the away team know that they're picking up another energy reading, similar to the one that had been there with the rice construct and the weapon thing. It's another floating phaser. Picard tries to shepherd Dr. Crusher to safety, though both he and she end up falling down a deep hole into some sort of underground chamber. It was a long way down, and it looks like Crusher is injured. Topside, Yar is having trouble killing the floating phaser. It's different from the first one, anticipating her tactics. Together, though, she and Data destroy it. They try to call the captain, but neither their communicators nor their plain old human calls work for him. Yar will look for him while Data works on freeing Riker. In the chamber, Picard and Crusher's communicators have stopped working, too. Picard goes to work making a splint for Crusher's obviously injured arm. She says she must keep conscious, indicating a worse injury than had first appeared. Back on the surface, Data is finally able to free Riker. He's fine. They go back on the hunt for the captain. With Riker free, the Enterprise is finally picking up five life signs, one for each member of the away team. But before they can beam them all up, the ship's shields go up. Something unseen is taking position and firing on the Enterprise. Act 3. All of a sudden, there's a chief engineer, Logan, and he's pretty much insubordinate to the command of Lieutenant LaForge. He indicates that staying in orbit of Minos is dumb, since that unseen thing could kill them. LaForge says they have to stay dumb, try to weaken the attacker's position, dumb, and rescue the away team, dumb! Logan says LaForge should turn command of the ship over to him. He is a higher-ranking officer, after all. LaForge says no. The arguing is interrupted by another attack from the unseen enemy. They're still unable to get a lock on it and fire back. Shields are weakened. When the attack ends, Logan goes back to arguing for command. Eventually, Geordi gets him off the bridge. Go find more power and give her all she's got. Like a good little chief engineer. On the planet, Riker, Yar, and Data are attacked by another floating phaser. This one's even better than the last one, though. Yar and Data together cannot destroy it, though the combined phasers of Yar, Data, and Riker can. Data says they appear to be coming every 12 minutes. Yar says there'll probably be no match for the next one. And Riker says, let's get the bleep out of here. After finding Picard and Crusher, of course. Speaking of whom, Crusher's losing consciousness. Turns out she has another wound, this one on her leg, and it must be losing a lot of blood. Picard gets Crusher to tell him how to deal, thus keeping her awake. She walks him through the use of an old folk cure, making use of some roots in the underground chamber. Aboard the Enterprise, the bridge crew tries an attack on whatever it is that's been attacking them. They miss. It hits. Shields are next to nil. And Logan is peppering the bridge with messages like, What's going on? And we gotta do something. And we can't take much more of this. Seemingly at a loss, LaForge tells Logan to report to the bridge. Act 4. It looks like Geordi is going to turn control of the Enterprise over to Logan. Nope, nope, wait. It looks like LaForge is going to turn the Enterprise around and run away. Actually, it's a combination of the two. Geordi is going to pull a saucer separation. Logan will have command of the saucer section. He's to take that to Starbase something. Who cares? Geordi will head to the battle bridge, take the rest of the ship back, and fight the good fight. Logan says it's risky. LaForge says, duh. Now let's get to it. But first, Troy would like a word with LaForge. It's supposed to be an important conversation, but it's not really. Sure, Geordi's nervous, but he's doing well. She just suggests that he treat his people with respect. Let them do their jobs. Show confidence in them. Maybe I was watching a different episode, but he actually seemed to be doing all of that pretty well. Still, it seems to resonate with LaForge. They reach. The Enterprise goes its separate ways. Back in the underground chamber, we learn a bit more about Dr. Crusher. She learned her folk medicine thing from her grandmother, who learned it as part of the ill-fated colony Alveda III, which means Beverly was part of that ill-fated colony, which kind of blows Picard's mind. It's clear in this exchange that Crusher has feelings for Picard, well, it's clear to everyone except Picard. He can be forgiven for missing that, though he's been poking around the chamber looking for anything that might be helpful. What he finds is the automated pitch man. Actually, it's a whole system of some sort. Hey, what do you know? It controls the weapons trying to kill the away team and trying to destroy the Enterprise. The pitch man is all pitch. Awesome, isn't it? It kills and kills and kills some more. Picard realizes that Minos was destroyed by its own creation. These awesome weapons. 
He orders the pitchman to shut the system down, but the pitchman doesn't get it. How can it demonstrate how awesome it is shut down? On the surface, Riker, Yar, and Data have found the hole through which Picard and Crusher fell. It's a long way down, but Data? He's awesome. He jumps in, unharmed. Alone on the surface, Riker and Yar anticipate a hopeless situation with the next attack. Act 5. Jordy gives the battle bridge crew a pep talk. We're going to lower the shields and beam up the away team. It's going to be risky, but you guys are awesome. Let's get to it. In the cavern, Picard and Data are trying to figure out how to shut down the weapon system. On the surface, Riker and Yar are trying to figure out how to survive the next attack. And coming up with nothing. You know, I'll bet everybody's going to die. In the cavern, the seriously injured Dr. Crusher has an idea. Why don't they turn the weapon system off? It's a machine, right? Picard orders the pitchman again to turn the system off. The pitchman says, they haven't seen the best part yet. Picard says, they've seen enough. Well, that sounds like a sale to the automated pitchman, is it? Yes, says Picard, they'll buy. And with that, the demonstration ends on the planet. Above the planet, the Enterprise is still under attack. They don't have to worry about the away team anymore, but they still need to destroy the attacker, which they do with a risky nail-biting maneuver. The away team is beaten back aboard. LaForge tries to turn the star drive back over to Picard, but he will not have it. He gave the ship to Geordi in one piece. He expects it back in the same condition. It is a gruff vote of confidence for LaForge that he's left in command. The end. Hey, Ken, uh, not that long ago, we got a piece of listener feedback who mentioned that when uh, when you came up with the idea of the poorly written Tasha Yar, yeah. um, that we, we floated that out there to the world, but then we stopped talking about the poorly written Tasha Yar, that the poorly written Tasha Yar had not really shown up that much after that. And I think here, we actually don't have a poorly written Tasha Yar. We... Uh, we- we approach a poorly written yar, I think. Here's what I will say. I think since we actually came up with that shorthand, because I honestly got tired of talking about mm-hmm. how poorly written she was, I, I think we've only sure. had to use that yeah, phrase yeah. one more time, honestly, yeah, yeah. since then. So, yeah, things things turned around somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Um, towards the end, I was a little like, ah, oh, that's a dumb thing for her to say. But she acknowledges <laughs> that it's a dumb thing for her to say. I mean, because right. honestly, first right. few episodes, she would have said the dumb thing, and Riker or Picard would have to say, no, no, that's stupid, and here's why. Whereas this time she says the dumb thing and Riker's like, you're really saying that? And she's like, oh, yeah, that wouldn't work because of this. So mm-hmm. but you're right. She's 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 much better than uh, much better than she than she might have been. She seems more just a part of the away team. And, oh, I'm, and I'm not, lo- looking forward to seeing how her character grows. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, <laughs> really exciting stuff. It is. You know, yeah, Season two, season three. I think she's oh. really going to hit her stride. Watch out. I yeah. know. I know. Um. Hey, uh, they mentioned that the top speed on the Drake uh, was warp three, which Mm. means that Minos, I I hope it's right around the corner. Mm. Disagreeing with you. Why? Because they don't actually say that the top speed of the Drake is three. What's his name? What's his name? Rice. Rice. Rice, Or the Rice construct says, what is your top speed? Ours is warp three. Mm -hmm. And then um, Breaker says is. So the Drake is still out there. And then the rice construct goes, the Drake. Yes, my ship was the Drake, or something like that. So he's mm-hmm. just, I think he's making small talk. I don't think we know anything about the Drake based on what, what the rice construct has said, because the rice construct is basically just there to make conversation. He's a chat bot, basically, right? Yeah, but he, he doesn't come up with he's any like new Eliza. information. Well, yeah, he is right. like Eliza. Yeah. Well, he, right, he doesn't come up with any new information. So when he says, what's your top speed? Ours is warp three. He's just making stuff up. I mean, ideally, what's going to happen there is Riker's going to go, warp three, we're warp 11. Hello. <laughs> or, you know, whatever their top warp speed is. But, right, but that's what I'm saying. But, but Rice, the, the construct of Rice, isn't able to make up information. He's not able to make up accurate information, but he doesn't even seem to have remembered that his ship was the Drake until, yeah. until Riker says, oh, so the Drake's still out there. I think it's I think it's just I think it's bogus stuff. I think it's I think it's he's I think he's an NPC on like a mid '80s or mid '90s uh, you know video game where you <laughs> walk up to somebody in town and they're like I like beats and that has nothing to do with anything and <laughs> and ideally you're supposed to go I like beats too or you know can you tell me something useful? Yeah, yeah. 
I'm sorry. Now I'm playing a mid '80s video game in my head. That's fine. That's Go absolutely ahead. I'm sorry. fine. Yeah, yeah. But uh, speaking of Rice, I mean, we don't really know anything about him because, of course, it is just a holographic construct of him. But mm-hmm. it is interesting that when you introduce that character, you tie it into new stuff about Riker, which is kind of cool. How Riker gave up command uh, in order to be on the Enterprise. Chose, and, chose not to take it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He gave up the opportunity, yes. shall I say, to take command, um, which I, I thought was very interesting. And um, hopefully we'll be able to revisit that thread of his character later on. Yeah, uh, I wonder like, if, if, like a, if like an older or a different Riker would have a problem with, with what Riker did. Yeah, yeah, you have to wonder. <laughs> you do have so, to wonder. And, but, but then more importantly, how do we justify, how does he justify doing what it is that he's doing? Because after all, he told Minuet that his job is his life. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, maybe he just doesn't want to hit that glass ceiling at all. Well, <laughs> yeah. there's, I, you know, I was actually thinking about that for a moment. Like, how much did Riker know about going on to the Enterprise? Like, what went into that decision? Mm-hmm. And this is the geek part of the show. We don't have to like apply life lessons to this. But what went into that? Mm-hmm. I mean, was it like, oh, yeah, so so blind navigator uh, robot <laughs> right. Klingon? Well, this is this has got comedy all over it. I've got to go be on this ship. <laughs> Or was it just the fact that the Enterprise was such a, you know, new, whiz-bang, fascinating big ship? Right. Or right. was it serving under Picard? We don't know what it is exactly, but we do know that whatever it was, or maybe it was a combination of all of it, he decided, yeah, this is the place I need to be. Yeah. And it's not out of the question. I mean, it, the Enterprise is the new whiz-bang ship. It is. So maybe you take a lower position to be on that ship. Um, but then, you know, in another life, uh, with that kind of decision-making, Riker must be like the oldest intern in the office forever and ever. You know? mm, that's interesting. That's an interesting. Uh, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Let's come, <laughs> let's come back to that in a few years. I'm glad that you mentioned uh, that Kirk would have just talked that computer to death. Yeah. Because we, we all know that's what would have happened. <laughs> and, and and I mentioned that in my notes there. And I, I kind of want to come back to it because it might play into the morals, meanings, messages when we get to that at the end of the show. Right. Uh, but I do feel like that's a, a pretty big difference between this and then how this would have played out in um, in TOS. And you also mentioned uh, Lieutenant Logan. And, uh, I'm, you know, he's a forthright, he's a very strong character. He comes all the way to the bridge to register his complaint instead of just doing it over the comm. And um, I'm thinking this is a strong, fully fleshed out character. We are bound to see more of him yeah. as chief engineer. You know, you know what? This, the, the, um, the chief engineer character is beginning to be like the uh, settler family on Gunsmoke. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, this very important character about whom we care. Let's go and take care of them. And the next week, it's like a new family living in that same farm and Dylan's out taking care of them or the Ponderosa or whatever. It's it's the, the chief engineer is that is that old West settler who's not the star of the show. He He's that he is the drummer from Spinal Tap and and he's Felix Leiter from all the James Bond movies. Just plug in a different actor. We don't care. Just <laughs> James Bond has a friend in the CIA. We don't care who he is. Right. You know? also mentioned that uh, Picard beams down. Yeah. And there's really no good reason for Picard to beam down. And look at it. He just gets himself into trouble. You well, know? Who else are you going to send? He could have said a team of scientists. Like, well, what's the problem he's facing? The problem he's facing is that there's an unknown entity on the planet mm-hmm. and it trapped his first officer in some kind of a stasis beam. So he knows there's trouble. Yeah. It's not like, hey, come down because this planet is full of ice cream and hot oil massages. It's yeah. like he's not going down for that. Yeah. He's going down because there's a problem, and it seems like if there's a problem, and Deanna rightfully says, uh, I disagree with the decision to go down. He's like, yeah, you disagree. I'm going. <laughs> See ya. Um, yeah. You got a thousand people on that ship. I, I'm guessing at least five of them are scientists who could go just get Riker out of that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm not seeing what your issue is. Okay. <laughs> Because <laughs> there's no Riker there to stop him. Apparently, he actually does need Riker to stop him from doing stupid stuff. It is as they talked about an encounter at Firepoint. So you wouldn't let your captain blunder into something dumb. No, sir, I wouldn't. Okay, well, don't let me do it either. Yes, sir, you got it. Second Riker's in stasis. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna 
<laughs> thinking of all the stupid things that Picard could do. No, I'm going to beam down to the planet, but first I'm going to get naked. I mean, there are a number of things. <laughs> right, right, right. Riker may actually be holding Picard's hand all the way through. In fact, maybe that's the wry smile in the beginning. It's like, oh no, I thought it would be better if I was on the Enterprise. You know, mostly because I don't want to see Mount Baldy get killed. Right? Maybe, Am I right, maybe, everybody? Maybe Riker. Maybe this is a whole underheaded thing. We know that there are deep politics, Star Trek at uh, Starfleet, rather. Mm, that's and, true. Yeah, and maybe he took a pay bump just to go. They were like, hey, look, we could give you command of another ship, but this other guy, he needs some hand-holding because he might really get himself into trouble if he doesn't have somebody to watch after him. Himself and everyone else. Uh-huh. Um, finally, I just have to say that I think the whole leaving Jordy in command thing is very cool. Mm-hmm. And that was a B-plot that played out very nicely. I, I've kind of... Um, I've kind of slammed the show from time to time about the A plot and the B plot just feeling so disconnected mm-hmm. and so uninteresting where you just create sort of a fake conflict uh, to drive the B plot. And at least in this, the plots were connected, but we actually got to explore what Jordy was doing. And you mentioned it. I, Jordy's doing great. He's doing a really good job. And then uh, Dana Troy is like, hey, look, let's talk about the job that you're doing. And I, you know, again, I, I think he's doing fine and he is making the tough decisions. And um, I, I like his uh, conflicts with Logan. So in outline form, then we've got Roman numeral one and mm-hmm. then we've got plot A and plot B. Right. And then under plot B, we would have um, Arabic numeral one. OK, yes. Yeah. We're, we're going to come back to Arabic numeral one later. Good. I hope somebody drew that out, by the way. I, I hope they did, too. Yeah. Retraction. Retraction. I have been told that Ken has not, in fact, realized his lifelong dream of turning himself into a cyborg, or robot, or something. In fact, he says, that's not his dream at all. He wants you to relax, and not worry about any world-girding artificial intelligence that may or may not have been born since last we spoke. He also wants you to know, there are, no strings, on him. So I know it was a long time ago, John, but you remember the long goodbye, right? Oh, that was so long ago. Yeah, dude, uh, dude, yeah. dude gets shot. Yeah, oh, right. Okay. And, and Crusher just, like, stands there. <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Crusher stands there. She's like, I, I need to get him to machine fix make better. Mm-hmm. She got nothing. Mm-hmm. She got nothing. She's not even ripping the hem of her skirt to, like, you know, staunch the bleeding or anything like that. Nothing. Mm-hmm. She's just standing there watching him die going, we're just going to watch this man die. Right. But, you know, when she's injured and on a foreign planet and, you know, has apparently, I don't know, would she have a compound fracture or something? Because she says her leg is injured, but it's bleeding and she's actually right. lost a lot of blood. Luckily, we are spared seeing that. Right, right. Um, she's like, oh, uh, that root over there, can you break it apart and then uh, taste it and see if it's yellow? And if it is, can you just rub it all over me? Which is not quite what happened, but close. <sighs> yeah. yeah. Um. I, I like the fact that she actually knows a bit more in this episode. Like, you know, in a, in a tough spot, she's actually able to work with what's around her as opposed mm-hmm. to what we've seen in the past has pretty much been, can we get another doctor in here or can I get this person to the amazing healing machines that we have? Mm-hmm. Um, it is also interesting that we learn a little bit about her past, but we don't learn a lot about it. Like, we don't go into a whole big thing about Alveda 3. It's just sort of, a, oh, I come from the school of hard knocks. And, you know, and then Picard's like, oh. You come from the school of hard knocks. I did not know that, mm-hmm. which they might have explored a bit more. But then, of course, Gene Roddenberry would have had a conniption because then she would have <laughs> convinced, you know, she would have said that she loved him, which we've all known for forever and will know for forever. But yeah. I just thought it was kind of, I thought it was interesting to see her actually to be able to do something besides, you know, poke in a machine or, or, or insert a hypo. Right, right. Well, I, so I have two problems with that scene. Really? And yeah, yeah. It, it, here's the thing. First of all, you're on a planet that you know nothing about except that there's a thing there trying to kill other people in your party. Right. And she's just like, yeah, grab grab that root and break it open and put it in your mouth. Yeah. If, which, su- if Superman has taught us anything, mm-hmm. yellow heals. Yellow makes strong. 
But if Star Trek has taught us anything, it's that when you go to the local planet and you taste something, it kills people. (laughs) Well, in fairness, she did say don't swallow it. I mean, this is not like it's not like that guy who was drinking all the water and the one with the girl. You know, I can't remember anything that far back. Yeah. Uh, or the Zaz eating stuff in the, in the, the man trap. So right. I do remember some stuff. It's not quite that bad. I mean, she does say, okay, so put it in your mouth. Don't swallow it. Yeah. Uh, so here, so then, then just put it directly into my bloodstream. Well. This gaping wound in my leg. Once it turns yellow, because again, yellow heals. No, and I mean, honestly, what it reminded me of, I, I sort of felt like, oh, good on them. They're not going the Aldea route. That's basically it. I mean, the technology is cool and all, but knowing how to actually do things yourself. Now, I do get what mm-hmm. you're saying. You mm-hmm. know, you find what looks like something on a completely foreign planet. I mean, remember the fruit that Adam ate in, um, right, yeah. in, the, way, in the, the way to Eden? Was it the way How to Eden? How could I forget it? Was it the way yeah. to Eden? It was the way to Eden. Dude, I am like naming TOS characters and episodes yeah. all around the place. <laughs> that's kind of, that's nuts. Um, yeah, it's sort yeah. of like that. I mean, it looks it looks perfectly edible, you're right, and then you eat it and you die. Or, yeah, that grass looks safe. Go ahead and step on it. Aha, it's mm-hmm. acid. Mm-hmm. I listened to our episode of that again recently. See, here's how, here's how I would think that it would play out, is that she's the doctor. Yeah. She knows what she's doing. She's got a medical kit with her. Nah, it's because, lost. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, you're right. Picard said he couldn't find it. You're right, you're right, you're yeah. right. Yeah. It's yeah, kind of yeah, weird yeah. to me because it's one room. I know, <laughs> right? <laughs> covered in sand. Covered in sand. Yeah, how right. did she end up covered in so much sand, by the way? She's like half buried. Right. After the fall. Yeah. And but, also not directly under the hole. Let's not think about this too much more because then the whole thing's going to fall apart. I don't know. But I, I will go. I mean, if we're going to talk about the story element of the Picard Crusher romance, I, I, it does feel like that scene is missing something. But at the same time, I'm glad that it didn't turn into a uh, Kirk and Rand what might have been because I fear a show like this jumping the shark that early on. Mm-hmm. So the, the hint, the tease of it there. Yeah, I you know maybe if that show had been written twenty years later, it would have been handled in a different way. But I feel like Gene Roddenberry was probably on to something to say we can't just force that on our audience. You know, sixteen episodes in. If Dave and Maddie taught us anything, and we'll find out whether they did in twenty twenty seven, right? But right. if Dave and Maddie taught us anything, getting the two main characters together is not always magic for the. Uh, for the show no no yeah. and not in lois and clark and not in remington steel and not in a lot of those shows you know <laughs> it just <laughs> i'm sorry i caught a remington steel rerun the other day so wow yeah. all right well at least you're watching other people's shows i just admitted to listening to ours yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, let's talk about some of the other topics in, uh, in today's show. So Arsenal of Freedom. I had to mention that speech by FDR uh, describing the arsenal of democracy because I love the use of language here. You know, it, it's nothing really new or fresh to examine new speak. If we throw out that Orwellian term. Mm-hmm. Um this was written, you know, let, let's put this into context. There are a few ways you can put this idea into context. So here it is, 1988, when this airs. So we're talking about a show written at the tail end of the Cold War, um, but before the war in the Gulf, where we had a new, a new and improved way to look at war and describe war. And even describing the mission names is something that's a little more palatable. And um, I, according to Maurice Hurley, Um, He felt that the story was inspired by the sale of U.S. fighter planes to Iran in the 70s. So here we were taking a couple of billion dollars from Iran to buy a bunch of F-14 Tomcats. And you pull some of the military industry out of potential bankruptcy. Hey, it's money that we don't have to spend. And look, you get all these super advanced fighters. Um, they mention it in the show, you know, who, which side did the people of Minos build weapons for? Well, they built it for both. <laughs> and that was, you know, an opportune bit of commentary. Again, you know, putting this into historical context, the wake of Iran-Contra, and, you know, many advanced countries have a history of selling weapons all over the world. So uh, I would say that that aspect of it was relevant then and it's relevant now. Um And again, going back to that phrasing, I'm just going to totally derail the timeline here because I'm amused that in a few years we'll hear a new and improved Christopher Pike describe Starfleet as a peacekeeping armada. 
And uh, <laughs> and uh, in this, uh, our, our salesman, Vincent Schiavelli, he has a couple of great lines. This is right at the beginning of the episode. Peace, yeah. peace through superior firepower. And then his next line, to be totally armed is to be totally secure. And it just felt like it's hilarious, but it's also chilling. <laughs> because, boy, does that one ring a bell then and in all the years between then and now, and probably for years to come. You know, one of the things you got to love about Star Trek, too, or at least uh, Star Trek as well, rather, because mm-hmm. there's lots to love about Star Trek, too, but we've Well, that. sure, sure. Yeah. Um, one of the things you got to love about Star Trek as well is that could, I mean, that's, the folly of, of what Minos did is so obvious that mm-hmm. they don't even talk about it. They don't even yeah. really discuss it. I mean, Picard at one point says, oh, you poor fools, you were destroyed by your own creation. Well, we knew that. We got that in the beginning. We, we're mm-hmm. getting that idea. And maybe it's supposed to be like a light dawns on marble head thing, you know, where, where Picard says it just in case people haven't picked up on that by act four. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I love the fact that they're not debating it. They're not talking about it. They're not, you know, it's just like, I mean, it's it's obvious what happened, it seems to me. And it's, well, but- and it's just the backdrop now for, for the adventure. But I mean, the whole time they're laboring under this horrible thing that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that is the... I'm sorry. The- forgive me. I have to correct my own phrasing there. Not this horrible thing that happened. This horrible thing that they did. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a different um, thing. And and here we have this uh, really interesting split between TOS storytelling and TNG storytelling, mm-hmm. because if this had been Kirk in Act Five, we would have had to have had a very sweaty, very well lit Kirk yelling at the computer or at the salesman vis a vis the computer mm-hmm. about the folly of war, about the folly of building up these arms, and hoping. Hoping in some way to short circuit its uh, its programming to stop the attack, but here we don't have to have that. All we have to have is Picard just say, "Yeah, I'll buy it," uh, to to shut it off. He just has to pull the plug out from the wall. Mm-hmm. But everything else that would have been the Kirk speech about how insane they were for building up these arms, how insane they were for killing themselves or letting their weapons kill them, mm-hmm. um, that was all understood by the audience. We, we should honestly try to we, – we need to we need to talk to a historian, a TV historian, I think, because why is it that you will have a more subtle representation less than 20 years later? Because it's only been – it's been less than 20 years. Is it because there's no network to please? Is it because it was in syndication and people could take it or leave it? Is it because storytelling has just gotten more subtle? Is it because at this point we've got 30 channels as opposed to three? I think it's like 30, 35 when Star Trek <laughs> The Next Generation was on. Is is you can I mean you can sort of be more intelligent because people have more choices. You're not vying for one of three places that people can watch TV. I'm curious what that is because you're right. Yeah. I mean this this would have been. I mean it honestly feels bonk bonk on the head except for the part where nobody's actually bringing out the hammer and going look look right. how stupid they're just like right. you know this is stupid all right well let's figure out how to get out of it yeah I don't know it's kind of I, I'm curious I'm curious no, I, why that would be. I think it's all of the above, you know, honestly. And I think, you know, again, we're crediting part of the story to Gene Roddenberry, at least with the elements that he took out. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't know if there was a Kirk speech moment in this. Um, but, yeah, it maybe it is just sort of that assumption that, OK, well, the audience is going to understand because we're already presenting the sleazy salesman character. We already understand. <laughs> we already understand the insanity of well, mutually assured destruction. Again, th- this is the tail end of the Cold War. Yeah, where, where it's just it's within sight by 1988, and we already understand as as human beings living at that time that no good can possibly come out of just uh, uh, an uncontrolled, unfettered arms race um, when both sides are already capable of destroying each other. So maybe it was a given. Maybe it was a given because of the time. Maybe it was a given because of the the kind of story they're going to tell. But here's the thing. I I like it both ways. I -hmm. I like having the Kirk speech telling the people from uh, A Taste of Armageddon how crazy they are. Yeah, but I also like this version as well, where you don't have to have that moment. 
yeah, you I just w- sort of imply it throughout. I wonder if I wonder if television audiences just aren't so into the Kirk speech by the time mm-hmm. this comes out. Because so far, we've really only had... We, we, I think we said that Riker sort of approached a Kirk speech in one episode. I can't remember which one. Might have been Angel One, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Riker sort of approached a Kirk speech at one point. Um, Picard, I think we we haven't had like the you know the Kirk speeches the way well, that we, we have. Yeah, we, we've gotten close. We got close yeah. in Justice. We got close in Angel One. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if there's like if people are sort of tired of, of moralizing on yeah. television at that point, and so you do have to be a bit more subtle as opposed to. Nobody's waiting for the UC Timmy, right? At this right. point, maybe it, it could be a part of that, and yeah, I mean, it, it could just be that. Well, maybe, maybe the longer you've been in that business and the longer you've written scripts, you think, you know what? I don't have to tell; I can show, mm. and that that is a good rule for storytelling and for script writing. Just just show. You don't need to tell. You don't always have to have the Kirk speech. But I do love a good Kirk speech. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's another little message in here, too. I, I think we take uh, that little swipe again at unfettered capitalism as well. You know, we the, the salesman is this kind of sleazy salesman archetype. And they they kind of don't even get that at first. I mm-hmm. mean, obviously, he's a recording at first, so they don't get that. But, um, yeah, it, it, it takes that last moment for Picard to realize, okay, to pull the plug, I just have to play this weird game where this guy just wants my purchase. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That'll make him shut up. Yeah. I actually, I do wonder now how, um, so, so now we know how the sales side of Minos works. Do we have to worry about fulfillment? Well, yeah, Be- I hope Because not. Picard yeah. has told them that, you know, okay, we'll buy it. And we do know that Minos can kill the enterprise yeah, right. so right. they actually have to buy it now that's right it's <laughs> right. kind of a scary thought um i, I will say i there, there are parts of their sales tactics that i would say are, are, are i don't want to say good but i would say they work and parts that don't um should you not warn people or or get their consent before you start the demo <laughs> right. right because yeah. they don't know <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it might have actually been better if Picard uh, – this uh, this episode, honestly, I was thinking it might have been better if, if Picard or some other ship had requested the demonstration, knowing what – knowing the history of Minos, knowing, okay, so they're an arsenal of whatever and blah, blah, blah. If we get there to save Rice because Rice took it upon himself to, yeah, let's see what you can do, that might that might have been kind of neater because what you get instead is basically uh, an extortion racket. Mm. The Enterprise shows mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. and they're just showing up. It's like, oh, Hi. And, and, you know, and, and immediately uh, something's firing at them and something's trapping them on the planet. I guess they could have just turned around and gone away. I guess if, if after that first, like, hard pitch on the uh, communicator or on the screen, if they hadn't beamed down, because, I mean, there is a call to action. Beam on down to my coordinates and, and I'll demonstrate. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it was really clear that that was, you know, that there was going to be, like, a live demonstration involving them. <laughs> right. Um, I do wonder, honestly, because you mentioned mutually assured destruction, but it's not mutually assured destruction. It's destruction because of what they did. It's easy to assume that this is a, a an anti-war episode, but I almost wonder if it's not more the unfettered capitalism or anti-unfettered capitalism that you were talking about. Hmm. Like the like the the interest in making money over, um, well, I don't know, morals <laughs> over yeah. over yeah, 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 over yeah. scruples. Um, yeah, we'll we'll hold a gun to your head until you say you'll buy, and because that's really what he's doing. He's holding a gun to their head until they say they'll buy. And they don't even mm-hmm. say, it, but they're not even saying it like you know. So we're going to kill you unless you do this. But I mean, that is what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were willing to outfit both sides of a conflict. Why? Because that'll just end up being more money, and that's what cost them. It wasn't war that cost them. It was the hmm. I want to do a play on words, but I can't. I want to say it's the war of war at all costs but maybe all costs at war kind of thing it's basically right, right. being willing to do whatever for the buck um it, it seems to me now i can i we got an interesting email from a yeah. listener the other day um kind of like you after heart of glory uh uh ted wrote in uh, to say that over the course of star trek he's pretty much been turned off by the klingons in fact uh, heart of glory kind of got him to think about them more than they have in the past 
Um, specifically, though, what he asks is, where are the Klingon scientists, engineers, musicians, janitors, cooks, salespeople, farmers, artists, doctors, etc., etc., etc.? How does Klingon society even function? Um, I would add, see, also Minos at this point. <laughs> right. And, and uh, you know, who knows? Maybe us one day. Mm-hmm. Um, the military advertising marketing complex on Minos is fat and happy. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah, they're doing great. At least one assumes it was until, you know, yeah. Big Papa uh, or whatever it was was turned on. I love it when yeah. I call it Big Papa, by yeah. the way. Yeah, um, they seem fine. One does wonder, though, if there was like a Minos counterculture there saying things like, you know, make love machines not war machines or something (laughs) like that i mean they're in a cavern so there are architects are the Mm -hmm. architects all about oh so you know when i grow up i'm going to build a building that'll house a computer that'll destroy everything i mean are they are they all on the on the you know weapons at all cost uh bandwagon or are there people who are like i just you know i just want to paint i just want to paint a picture of something not blowing up and then they get blown up anyway yeah, I mean, this is kind of the difficulty, again, with the, the short format of a TV show like this, where we have the monoculture again. Yeah. And, and it, all that we know about this culture is that they're really good about making and marketing things to destroy entire cultures. Yeah. And Which is we, sad, because there are ways yeah. that you could look at this planet and say, oh, well, then they're us. Well, no, not exactly, because we're also mm-hmm. really good at making art, and we're also really good at making, you know, good movies and we're also really good at making crappy television shows yeah yeah. and we make the best cheetos in the known galaxy right very true yeah yeah um yeah no that's that that's a tough question because we don't know how many of the minotians (laughs) there are (laughs) you know and and we don't know how long ago they were and we don't know um exactly to whom those weapons were sold. So there's a lot of unknowns there. And, and yeah, that's fine. We'll, we'll let them just be the stand-in for, uh, for this huge arms race and then this, um, uh, let, let's say, uh, uh, commerce without ethics. Hmm. You know? I, I think that that's clearly those are the important messages there. But, but whether or not we learn more about their culture, I, I would like to think that there were people who were uh, who were just as creative, just as smart, just as talented, who weren't doing things like building weapons. If their planet had been making love machines and not war machines, that would have been a whole other place for sure, Leave, And that would have been another episode of Star Trek entirely. With the toys of the killer planet safely put away, it's time now to figure out what messages and such we can take from the arsenal of freedom. You've checked the text. You've checked the specs. You've given it a test drive. Now the question that I have for you, John Champion, what does it take to get you into arsenal of freedom? Or... (laughs) Put it a different way. What did you What did you think of the show? Does it hold up? Does this episode of, of Star Trek: Next Generation, this arsenal of freedom, does it hold up for you? Uh, I tell you what, I'm I'm buying, but I want a discount. <laughs> oh, really? All right. Well, yeah, because I, I say yeah, th- this episode holds up mostly. Mostly, mm-hmm. um, it's a very elaborate. Uh, just let's talk about production for a moment here. It is a very elaborate set if a little fake looking they're on their planet hell set where they're you know a lot of trees and pretty interesting underground lair for that part of the set um i i would kind of have liked to have seen this one shot on location Mm. but that would have been another entirely expensive operation but i thought it would have lent something to this that it was missing would have also made it harder to work the puppet absolutely yeah 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 um, well, I, I'm, you, I'm amazed, yeah. by the way, to hear that that was a puppet because I kept looking at it. That is a very well-made model because, and it's amazing too that it was yeah. made out of legs and shampoo because um, because yeah. um, I, I I kept thinking something about that just looks fake, right? Well, <laughs> well yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't composite very well because you know, what you have is you you have uh, Dan Curry on a set wearing the the green screen outfit okay. doing okay. the motions right. and then you composite that to make it look bigger than it really is because the model is tiny you've, you've seen a, a legs container tiny you know <laughs> and uh, i don't know why you say it that way but yeah well, <laughs> I, I have seen a legs of container course, of course you have yeah yes. um <laughs> but here's the thing the plot delivers what you need 
Yeah. You know, uh, the the weapons control system and the exposition um, rather than letting you necessarily discover it. Um, it sort of pushes everything in your face. Um, and this is familiar ground for Star Trek. Definitely the computerized arm system gone haywire, a commentary about weapons out of control, a little more of that message about commerce and capitalism and the, the removal of ethics from that, um, that loss of humanity. Uh, but it all goes way beyond Star Trek, too, as well. More so, <laughs> right. in addition. Um, there are other great pieces of literature that, that take on these topics. Um, so I think this is good. I, I don't think it's amazing. And, and I say, yes, it holds up mostly. Yeah. But I don't think this is one that I will reach for to watch over and over again. And it may partly be just because of the production value, which, again, I think is good. And it's very interesting, but it's not mind-blowing necessarily. So tell me what you thought. Um, I have problems with this episode, and I like it. I like the episode. I don't like the problems. Um, mm -hmm. The problems are a little too problematic for me. Uh, Logan, I think, is a poorly written character. Mm -hmm. um, he's mad that the Enterprise is staying, risking the lives of everyone on the ship while the ship is being attacked. But then when... It looks like Jordy's going to take the ship away. He's disdainful of the fact that they're leaving the away team on the planet. Yeah. He was basically just there to be a thorn in Jordy's side. And I didn't like that part. I mean, it was, it was a little too, if there had been two characters sort of vying for Jordy's attention, then I would have uh, maybe been a little bit better with that. But the fact that it's the one guy who's like, you should do this. And then Jordy does that. He's like, Oh, you shouldn't do that. You know? I mean, he never says what it is that he would do. He just says, I should be in command. Um, and that kind of bummed me out. Mm -hmm. um, and then the the um, Arabic numeral one under the letter B under the Roman numeral one. <laughs> right. okay. uh, we're supposed to get some sort of growth out of Jordy here, but we never see the need for the growth. Right? Um, he's okay in command. He's not. He's not. You know, inspiring the way a Kirk is, or the way a Pike is, or the way a um, or the way a Picard is. But he's not terrible. He's not screwing up. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, he's in a tough situation. He's working through the situation. The scene between Troy and LaForge was supposed to be a defining scene, I felt like. And I felt like it was written down to be a defining scene. But the problem is he's doing everything that she's already saying. I mean, at one point, he, you know, finds some issue that one of the ensign is having. And she's like, uh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I should have seen that. And he's like, no, no, you're doing a good job. And so then she's going to take him aside and go, hey, tell them they're doing good jobs. Well, right, right. I did. <laughs> yeah. And I'm taking them with me to the dangerous part. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not calling for somebody else. I'm not bringing Logan with me. Logan's taking the, you know, the people to safety. He's not going to be in the thickest stuff. He's just going to guide them to safety. And I'm taking these cadets with me or these ensign with me or these, you know, lower, you know, ranked officers with me uh, into the stuff, mm -hmm. you know? And so I, th that part bothered me too. Now, all the stuff about the unfettered capitalism, I think, is fascinating. Uh, the idea of building weapons, you know, so good that you end up destroying yourself. Um, and it, you're right. It does it does call to mind mutually assured destruction. Um, all that stuff's really interesting. I like the fact, I mean, as you said, I don't want Crusher to admit her feelings for Picard to Picard. Mm -hmm. Now, it's been a long time since I've watched all of these. I know that we always know that she's got some feeling for him. If this becomes, you know, longing looks and sideways glances every episode, that's probably going to start to annoy me. But I'm okay, you know, that we're just giving, being given a hint of this. And I like the fact that we do get a little bit more depth from her character than we've had before. Not just, you know, her being more open about her feelings for Picard, but also the fact that she came up through, through hard times or through a hard situation. Yeah. And the fact that she actually knows how to do something besides push a button. So, I mean, there's <laughs> there's stuff here to like. Um, it's not a perfect episode, but it's it's I'd say it's a good episode. It's not awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm right there with you. I, I think just going back to the Beverly thing, you know, I, I side with Gene Roddenberry here with the idea that it, at least not this way, at least not this early. Yeah. You can't just force that in there. Now, I do think that that could have been a better written scene. There are good things that come out of that scene. And like you said, just that little bit of backstory we got on uh, Beverly is very interesting. 
and it, it's an interesting little nugget to kind of keep in the back of your head about her character as she progresses. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, it, it, it would have ruined things very early on if it had been a moment of, well, I'm dying, so let me tell you how I really feel about you, but then I'm okay again. And then in the next episode, you only have a choice of either ignore it entirely, mm-hmm. which seems false, and, and it leaves the audience wondering what happened, or you have to then keep having those long sideways glances. And then ultimately, what's the payoff for that? Yeah. You know, it, it would have been a mistake. Um, not to say that that scene is perfect, but yeah, I, I get the impetus for cutting it short the way they did. Um, all right. So let's talk about messages here. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can go right ahead, I, I picked up two, I think, very important messages from this. Um, it's terrible to have a weapon that can learn and adapt to carry out its mission. Um, also, it is awesome to have a Starfleet captain who can learn and adapt to carry out his or her mission. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Look what you, you, you put a little twist on it, didn't you? I did. It's yeah. a little twist right there because the problem with those weapons is they keep coming back. They get smarter. They use new techniques. They learn about their enemy. The weapons learn about their enemies. Yeah. And they just get better and better with each turn and become more and more powerful with each turn. And uh, Jordy kind of does the same thing. The good news is, though, if you're on Minos or Minos or whichever, Mm -hmm. and uh, and you come across this system, you only have to get through four rounds. Because I don't know if you remember that. I'm sure that was just for the viewer. But they were like, oh, here comes the fourth and final whatever, right? Mm, mm-hmm, and so if mm-hmm. a well-written Tashi Yar had come up with a way to defeat it, then the yeah. bitch man would have been like, well, you didn't really catch us on a good day. Tell you what, uh, <laughs> stop back in six months and we'll have a new demo for you. And uh, I feel certain then. And plus 50% off for this one because it's obviously crap. Right. <laughs> right. If you're right. able to if you're able to do it. Yeah, I I don't want to I don't want to leave off the unfettered capitalism message as well. And the thing is, yeah. I mean yeah. it's it, it's funny because I say there's no bonk bonk on the head about the weapons, but the weapons are literally so in your face in this episode that you can almost lose the whole unfettered capitalism thing. Immediately the first time and a half I watched it, my thinking was, "Oh, well this is all about the folly of war." And it is, but mm-hmm. <laughs> they weren't at war. They were they were just they were just capitalists with no soul or with no with no sense of conscience. And that's mm-hmm. what killed them. I mean, they could have it could have just as easily been. Well, it still would have to have been something destructive. I was going to say some sort of horrible pathogen, but that's, that's <laughs> about as bad, I suppose. Well, well no matter how you look at it, you know, whether we're looking at the weapons or we're looking at the salesman. Both are automated, both are computers, and both have had any sense of ethics or compassion removed from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. and, and let's yeah, let's do make that delineation. This is not, at least I'm not, and I think I speak for John when I say we are not saying that this is an anti-capitalism episode. We're saying that this is an anti-unfettered capitalism episode. Yeah. Well, well it, it's anti-missing the human element from that. Because Which is yeah, so, we, it's just so Star Trek, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you could build the machine, you could turn it on, but then when you walk away from it, don't pretend like you don't still have an obligation or or responsibility for what that machine does. Hmm. Yes. yes. Either way, either way here. So does there that hold go. up? Sure. Yeah, I think so. And you know what I'll bet? Mm-hmm. I'll bet other people will think so as well, but maybe they won't. Should we, <laughs> should we maybe go ahead and let them uh, find out how they can tell us? I think we should. And uh, there are numerous ways that they can reach us. Um, You can join in. We have a kind of an ongoing conversation through uh, Facebook and Skype and Twitter uh, and all three of those places in the handle Mission Log Pod. You can call us at 323-522-5641. You can send us an email, missionlog at roddenberry.com. Um, and, you know, I, I have to mention that it, the awesome thing, Ken, about doing this show is that we get to share our opinions and we get to hear from people and we get awesome emails and comments from people. We don't get to reply to all of them in great detail, but boy, do we try. <laughs> and um, But it's awfully fun to read and awfully fun to see uh, what people are saying and what they're inspired or infuriated by on our show. Um, 
our website, including discovered documents and all kinds of information about Mission Log, is missionlogpodcast.com. And uh, we have two distributors who carry our show in addition to ourselves. We have trekmovie.com and trekfm. That's trek.fm. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log, as we did today. You know, the crazy thing about, uh, about doing a show, John, is, is the show is nothing without listeners. And of course, you know, listeners need a show to listen to. It's sort of a, uh, it's sort of a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a situation where where one sort of helps the. It's uh, what do they call that? Oh, oh, I think the word you're looking for would be a uh, a symbiosis. Yeah, maybe we'll talk more about that next week. Some of the music formation log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Well played. I was going to say parasitic. (laughs) (laughs) But a mutually parasitic something or other. It's a a needy relationship. It's a... uh... Life-sucking, (laughs) soul-sucking. has to do with sucking. And transmission.